Today on Blue 58, the Packers are theoretically going to get their first big test of the season Sunday against the Saints. But who are the Saints? Do the Saints even know? That's the big question heading into Big 3. Let's talk about it. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here uh, for another episode. We've got another preview, and I think this preview is shaping up to be a little bit different than the first couple weeks. Generally, my thinking for this first couple weeks of the season, and we're rapidly approaching the uh, one-quarter mark of the season, generally the thinking for me has been we don't know much about the Packers yet, and... We always kind of pointed, royal we there, to this week as when we would start to figure something out about the Packers. The foregone conclusion was that the Saints would be a really good team, it would be a super tough road test, and we'd figure out a lot about the Packers Sunday night in New Orleans. But maybe not. Now, the Saints are still formidable. But they're having a bit of an identity crisis right now, not because they are a bad team or, or have bad players or, or even really playing particularly poorly, but Drew Brees is a 1,000 years old, and his arm is less strong than it's ever been. That's apparent if you look at the, the film. That's apparent if you look at the stats. Michael Thomas, their all-world wide receiver, is hurt. Alvin Kamara and Latavius Murray are carrying the ball a bunch but going pretty much nowhere. The defense has given up 57 points to two teams not really widely considered offensive juggernauts. The Buccaneers, even with Brady, have been pretty hit or miss so far this season. The Raiders are kind of just the Raiders. What are they from week to week in the John Gruden era? Does anybody really know? So with all that on the table, is it even possible to learn anything about the Packers? And my answer is a very firm Maybe, given that lineup of stuff that we know about the Saints, all of the various foibles that they have here, I don't even want to say weaknesses, just quirks to this Saints team, I think you would expect that the Packers should win. But the Packers struggled in 2019 to beat teams that they should beat, whether they were good, bad, or in between. They've been better in 2020 so far, but look at how they finished last year. Regular season, last four weeks. They beat the the Washington football team. I don't even know what we call them when we're referring to them in the past. It doesn't really matter. They beat Washington 20-15. They beat the Bears 21-13. They beat the Vikings 23-10. And they beat the Lions 23-20 in another last-second field goal. Now, there's two multi-score wins in there. But the win over Washington was hardly as convincing as it should have been, given the state that Washington was in at that point in the season. The Bears always paid the Packers tough, so we'll, we'll give them a little bit of a pass there. But the Vikings, they were a good team, but the Packers didn't put them away until late. And the Lions, same story, had to come back and beat them down the stretch. Now, the Packers have been a little bit better, as we said, in 2020, taking care of business against teams they should beat. But here they're going on the road against a dangerous Saints team. And we're going to learn whether the Packers can take care of business against the team they should probably beat. So what makes the team, the Saints, a team the Packers should probably beat? Let's start with their offense. 
I've alluded to this a couple times, but I still think the Saints are pretty darn good on offense. And there's really no reason not to unless they put up a really long string here where they're not doing much on offense. And even though they lost, that hasn't been like they've been doing nothing. Strong may not be the right word, but Alvin Kamara and Latavius Murray have been doing a lot of the work for the Saints so far. Drew Brees has thrown the ball 68 times. Together, Kamara and Murray have touched it 59 times. That number goes up to 63 if you add in the targets instead of just the catches. It's pretty well even. Either Drew Brees is throwing it, or Alvin Kamara, or Kenneth Mur- or Latavius Murray, Kenneth Murray, I don't know who that is, um, is is touching the ball. Now, some of those throws from Breeze are going to Alvin Kamara, but you get what I'm saying here. Their offense, so far at least, is running through Alvin Kamara and Latavius Murray. Is it working? Yeah, not necessarily. Alvin Kamara is averaging 3.8 yards per carry, 6.2 yards per touch overall. He's having the one of the highest yards per catch seasons of his career, though, at 10.1 yards per catch. That's not all bad. Latavius Murray, though, 3.4 per carry, 4.1 per touch. Basically, he's Adrian Peterson that the Packers faced earlier this year. It's not going to destroy you on the ground, but you better bring your hard hat if you're going to tackle him because he's a load. Incidentally, I've always liked to track Latavius Murray's career because there were some really strong rumors about the Packers being interested in signing him a couple years back. They never materialized. He actually ended up in Minnesota, as you might remember, uh, for a while, but um, he's, he's a good player and a, a good physical specimen in the backfield, if nothing else, but not putting up uh, terribly big numbers so far this year. The Saints are a bit vulnerable at a couple spots, though. Wide receiver is the first one that comes to mind. Without Michael Thomas there, there's not a lot going on at receiver. Look this up. Go to profootballreference.com. Look it up. Because I'm going to say something to you that's going to sound almost impossible to believe. Through two games, no Saints wide receiver has been targeted with more than eight passes this year. This is true. This is absolutely true. The Saints are just not getting the ball to wide receivers at all. Their most productive receiver so far this year is Traquan Smith. And I'm being forced to trust pro football reference on this because I did not know he was a real person until today. If you could have told, thrown me the name Traquan Smith just out of the blue before I started researching this podcast, I would not have known who he was. And he's got eight targets so far this year, the most among Saints receivers. Emmanuel Sanders also has eight targets, just four catches for 33 yards. He, of the constant rumors to the Packers, it seems, over the past year or so, uh, traded to the 49ers last year, then ended up with the Saints in free agency. The Packers were apparently in on that conversation, but he decided he didn't want to play in the cold. And if you don't want to be cold, I understand that, but also uh, good riddance to you because it's not that cold in Wisconsin. You can get over it. Also a weakness on the court, on the, on the Saints this year, giving it away with a misspeak there, but quarterback. Okay, this takes a little unpacking. Drew Brees. Obviously a legendary player, very good for most of his career. But so far this year, the numbers look real bad. And it matches what it looks like on on tape because it just looks like he cannot get the ball down the field at all. And the accuracy that was once tremendous is just not there. He's among the worst in the league uh, when it comes to completion percentage over expectation. So this is an advanced metric. I understand there's some skepticism out there about that, but CPOE measures how you're doing on passes that you should complete given where the receiver is in relation to you when you throw it. So I say a 
a receiver is 10 yards downfield. Typically in that situation, an NFL quarterback would complete the pass 65% of the time. If you're completing that pass 70% of the time, your CPOE uh, would be 5%. Follow with me? Good. Drew Brees is completing a lot fewer passes than he should, given where he's targeting his players. Where is he targeting this player, his players? Well, it's not deep. His depth of target is honestly just about 18 inches past the line of scrimmage, and that's not much of an exaggeration. Legitimately, it's 4.6 yards downfield. To put that into context, we raved earlier this week about Aaron Jones' average depth of target this year. It was, it was showing how far downfield he was going for a running back. He was only going 4.8 yards downfield on the average target this year. All right? Breeze is basically throwing mainly checkdowns and a few fairly conservative shots down the field. This is not bombs away Drew Breeze here. In the efficiency numbers, he's ranking, I, I won't quote the exact numbers because it, it, it's hard to contextualize exactly what they mean, but in yards above replacement, de- defense adjusted yards above replacement, he's ranking just above Justin Herbert, who's played one game. He's got one game worth of stats and Breeze through two is only slightly better than the rookie who wasn't expected to play very much this year. On DVOA, the value per play, he's second to last among quarterbacks who actually are contributing a positive value to their team. Other than te- other than guys who are making their teams actively worse on a per-play basis, he is the second worst. Other than the guys who are making their teams bad every time they drop back, he is the second worst in the league, just slightly above Ben Roethlisberger. Am I still scared of Drew Brees? Absolutely. Because if there's one game that could turn it around, it seems like it would be a primetime game at home against the Packers who have a fairly suspect defense some of the time. Who else should we know about? Well, first we've got to devote an entire category to old friends. There are three of them. Taysom Hill. What up, Taysom Hill? I don't have anything to say about Taysom Hill. It's a, it's a fun little thing to get more unusual player use in the league. But as far as what he would contribute to the Packers, it would be pretty minimal. If you believe that he would have been used the same way in Green Bay that he has been in New Orleans, you're kidding yourself because Mike McCarthy just wouldn't have used him that way. It's just the God's honest truth. It just wouldn't have happened. The Packers also would not have resigned him to the contract that they that the Saints gave to Taysom Hill. It just would not have happened. To put that in context, he has roughly the same cap figure this year as Rick Wagner. Who would you rather spend about four and a quarter million dollars of cap space on? A backup quarterback or a starting right tackle? Thank you. You know the answer. He would also be the fifth oldest player on the Packers this season. Your backup quarterback who still hasn't really learned how to pass super consistently. That's a pass on just about all fronts for me. Let's move on from Taysom Hill. Jared Cook, also hanging around in New Orleans. Hello, Jared Cook. Very sorry about the Martellus Bennett thing. Didn't really work out on our end either. Wish he was in Green Bay. Ty Montgomery is also kicking around in New Orleans. Interesting to note, he has not returned a kick yet for the Saints this year. Just seems like something we should mention. Other guys that you should know about, really just one. I spoke for Acme Packing Company with Chris Dunnels this year, the managing editor, or this week, excuse me, the managing editor of Canal Street Chronicle, these uh, chronicles, the SB Nation blog for the New Orleans Saints. He said the guy we should be keeping an eye on is second-year wide receiver Deontay Harris. All, team, all, all pro first team last year as a kick returner, 5 feet 6 inches tall, 
They like to get him the ball in a variety of ways. He has two carries so far this year for 20 yards and four catches for 40 yards. Let's break out the abacus, and that seems like it breaks down to about 10 yards per touch. Six touches, 60 yards. Yep, that checks out for me. Let's flip over to defense. Where are the Saints strong? Run defense so far has been pretty strong for the Saints. Really, the entire line-related stuff has been pretty good. They are third in adjusted line yards. They are seventh in pass rush among their among their defense. They're doing pretty good up front. Cam Jordan getting work done. Uh, just a just a pretty strong group there, and they're they're producing pretty well so far. Where are they most vulnerable? Uh, Chris, again, to circle back to our conversation with uh, Canal Street Chronicles, says, quote, stick to the run enough to force defensive coordinator Dennis Allen to think he can sell out to stop it and then attack Janoris Jenkins early and often. Even if you don't get the chunk plays, you'll probably get a few pass interference calls to help you along the way, end quote. Now, playing for penalties sounds like a weird strategy, but it might actually not be that bad an idea against the Saints. So far this year, they are tied with Cleveland as the second most penalized team in the league. As a team, just through two games, they've been called for six defensive pass interference penalties. The league average is 1.47 through two games. Marshawn Lattimore, their excellent corner, has two of the six. Now, penalties are not something you can really bank on, and they vary a lot from week to week. Nevertheless, something we should be aware of. Elsewhere, you might want to know about Demario Davis, their all-pro linebacker last year, toiling in obscurity for most of his career before ending up with the Saints for the last three seasons. And I do mean that. He spent a lot of time with the Jets and the Browns. He's a familiar face for Mike Pettin. He played for Pettin with the Jets in 2012 and then with the Browns in 2016, which also makes him a former teammate of one Christian Kirksey. Just to throw a couple numbers at you, they're ball hawks leaders, are Janoris Jenkins and Malcolm Jenkins. They have three apiece. Their production ratio leaders are Trey Hendrickson, who is sitting comfortably at a two and a half so far this year. Two sacks, three tackles for loss. Demario Davis is right up there as well because he has two tackles for loss to go with one sack. He also has two ball hawks, so he will make plays on both sides of the lines of scrimmage and, uh, and in the passing game. Weird things happen when the Packers and Saints get together. The last two games especially are, are pretty interesting, though it, it goes much deeper than that. Just a, just a quick rundown. The last five times they've played, they've all been pretty high-scoring games. We're going to focus just on the, uh, the, last, the last two, though. The last time the Packers and Saints played, uh, the Saints won 26-17 at Lambeau Field. Uh, this was, of course, without Aaron Rodgers. Brett Hundley, just uninspiring that day, 12 of 25 for 87 yards. Aaron Jones did have 131 yards and a 46-yard touchdown, but generally just not a phenomenal game all around. Even Drew Brees, not particularly sharp, two interceptions on 38 attempts, uh, an 84.4 passer rating that day. But in 2014... Uh, the Packers also had a rough go at the hands of the Saints. This was the last time the Saints played in New Orleans. Also the debut. I had a whole thing ready to go on uh, on Lane Taylor making his first real debut for the Packers against the Saints, but then he had to go ahead and tear his ACL. Real bummer all around. Much bigger bummer for him than for me. Uh, but this was a weird game too. Went into the half, tied at 16. Saints end up winning 44-23. to It seems like they... They came out and did it here in the second half. Uh, this game featured a 70-yard touchdown by Randall Cobb. It featured a 67-yard catch-and-run by Eddie Lacy. Uh, it featured 
Julius Peppers lining up wide near the goal line and running a slant route and having the ball bounce off his chest. For some reason, still not entirely sure why that happened. Packers couldn't stop the ground game here. Gave up 172 yards to Mark Ingram. Drew Brees really didn't even have to do all that much, but he still tossed three touchdowns for good measure. Oh, in this game, we also feature uh, Jimmy Graham uh, catching a bunch of passes and a touchdown as a member of the New Orleans Saints. Hopefully this game is a little bit more pedestrian than that and ends up with the Packers coming out on top. So who's going to win? I think the Packers do win here. And I think that's just because, circling back to our opening, I feel like we just know more a little bit about who the Packers are right now. I think given what the Saints have gone through so far this season, they are still in the figuring it out phase. They don't know what they are just yet. They sure aren't the preferred version of the team they would like to be with with Michael Thomas out. So they've got a ways to go. And I think just as a result of that, the Packers end up winning. Now, I do think the Saints are going to get some stuff going on offense. If I was a betting man, I would go ahead and bet the over in this one which was the last time I checked, 51 and a half points. I would take the over there. I think the Packers win 35 to 31. We'll go well over there. A lot of you are with me. According to our Packers polling, 83.3% of our voters say the Packers are going to win on Sunday. That's high, but it is low for the season so far. The overall approval rating for the team to continue with our Packers polling is holding steady at 93.8, down a tenth of a percent from last week. Mike Pettin is seeing a little bit of movement in his poll numbers. 25% of voters disapprove of Mike Pettin's job so far this season, but a whopping 60% of voters say they have a neutral opinion of Mike Pettin. That usually means voters are going to just wait and see what happens, and a lot of people are waiting to see on Mike Pettin. People are making up their minds about Sean Menenga, though. Uh, a record number of voters are decided on him in one direction. For the first time ever in our polling, Sean Menenga has a positive approval rating. 55.2% of voters approve of the job Sean Menenga is doing. Hasn't had to do a whole lot this year. Uh, J.K. Scott has only punted, what, like four times so far this year? That is where the Packers had a lot of their problems in the past, as well as penalties on kickoff coverage. But the Packers have not had to cover a whole lot of kicks because they've had a lot of touchbacks. And they haven't gotten a chance to really mess up anything on punt returns because J.K. Scott's kicking the ball well, and they just don't have to do it a whole lot. Finally, you guys are a confident bunch, but I think with good reason. 100% of voters in Week 3 think the Packers will make the playoffs this year. I'm interested to see how right everybody is and how much those numbers move after whatever happens on Sunday. Before we go, I want to spend a second reacting to some stuff that we had as a result of uh, the, the last podcast topic. So we talked about the possibility, probability, maybe, of giving Aaron Jones a new contract. And some people had some some very good thoughts. I am always, like I said, a little bit hesitant to do those topics because everybody has a really strong opinion about it. And it, it just has just is one of those topics that tends to get people a little bit little bit turned up. Um, but people I've been very pleasantly surprised the the depth to which 
people have responded to this topic by coming up with their own evaluations of the pros and cons. You guys have done a remarkable job on this. And there are some takes that I want to talk through a little bit just because of, I I guess, how impressive uh, some of the, the points are. And this is not an exception that people make good points in response to things that I say. You guys are a smart bunch. I mean, obviously, you're listening to the show. Um, as you know, I got to toot my own horn a little bit, but, uh, you guys have really thought this through really well. And I think there are some really good arguments out here in favor of both signing and moving on from Aaron Jones. First Aaron on Facebook says, uh, you had to bring up all the stats and facts. I just want him back. Honestly, I know we won't, but I don't think trading him is that crazy. Although it really hurts us for the remainder of the season. One supporter out there for crazy John in the last episode saying we should, we should trade Aaron Rodgers, or not Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Jones. I don't actually think they they should trade him right now, but uh, it's not it should it's not something that should be completely off the table yet, either. Uh, but but other evaluations of the situation. Cole on Twitter says I am on the pay Aaron Jones train. I think he is too valuable of a player to let this offense to this offense to let walk. Twelve million per year is where I would feel most comfortable. Something past the fifty million dollar area over four years would be pushing it, just because of the wear and tear of the position. Real big props to the people who put a number on it. That's going to be the the tricky part here, figuring out what the money is. But pay attention to that cash flow because something like a a $50 million deal over four years could end up being something like, I don't know, $35 million over three years. That's starting to trend a little bit more toward the affordable uh, territory. That is under $12 million per year. Tony on YouTube says, very tough call. I think GM Tony would be willing to go up for maybe to maybe four years, $44 million. That's $11 million per. Over that is a tough pill to swallow for me, but Jones is special, so my guard is down on this one, and we need to keep him. I like that one, too. Four years, $44 million is something I'd probably be interested in. Again, that works out to something probably more like a three-year, 30-something million dollar deal. If it was three years, $35 million, again, that, that's probably pretty, pretty doable. Doug on YouTube points out, Uh, Maybe a Rod Tidwell wait-and-see type season where he finally gets his payday by December. Sorry for the Jerry Maguire reference. First, Doug, no need to apologize there. This is a open zone, a safe space, if you will, for all bad jokes, references, puns, dad jokes, and the like. So if you have them, smoke them if you got them. Doug continues, I think his contract will come in the final four games of the season. But question, is Kevin King worth more than Jones when we'll be factoring in that we'll be having the same conversation next year with Jair Alexander. Talk about having to find money to pay an elite corner. If you factor that in, Jair is greater than King, therefore Jones is greater than King if we can't pay both, nor can we pay all three. Adding another variable in here, too. I'm sure the Packers are aware of that, but it's something we should be considering as we start talking about contracts and things like that. It's not just this offseason. It's the one after that, the one after that, though less so the one after that. But still, thinking a couple years down the road is never a bad thing. And if it comes down to keeping Kevin King or Aaron Jones, do you keep King if you're even if you're going to have to pay Jair? I think I would still lean towards a little bit more Kevin King, just given the value of the position. But paying two elite corners is, is pretty expensive too. Um, King may not even be an elite corner, just a, a very good one is still going to be pretty expensive, even given his his injury history. But 
that's a good way to build a defense. Build around your secondary. Secondary play tends to be pretty stable over time. So, boy, if you could keep those two around, that wouldn't necessarily be that bad of a thing. Red Dead Dylan on YouTube says, given a running back who has only six to eight good years, four of them being his prime years, I think we only have about three really good years of him healthy left. And I I wondered about this a little bit. Could there be a, a situation where to reduce the wear and tear on Aaron Jones, they actually end up playing him a little bit more like Tyler Irvin and having A.J. Dillon run between the tackles more as the seasons go on. So say you end up re-signing Aaron Jones. Do you have him running more of the jet sweeps, the more pure space player, quasi-receiver type stuff? I think that's that's a potentially realistic strategy, but it's also a lot of money to commit to a guy who's doing that. So that's why you might have to think about him the way that Kevin on YouTube, to go with our last comment, does here. We should only really pay him, Kevin says, if no other receiver can beat him as a pass catcher. He is the second most reliable and... He is needed if no others, minus Adams, can step up. I can stomach it if we see him as more of a receiving back on our roster, viewed mostly as the number two target for Rodgers. But otherwise, I can't myself uh, can't myself argue for paying with him. All of these are very fair positions, and, and I, I like Kevin's there, that if you think of him as more than just a running back, a guy who can play in space, do receiver things, do re- things a, a wide receiver would normally do, those routes down the field, running receiver-type routes, I think the case for paying Jones does get a little bit stronger. And even if you went up to something like $12 million a year, for a number two wide receiver, a really, really good one, you wouldn't think a whole lot about paying that much money, especially pre-pandemic, given given the growth of the salary cap. The problem is you have to continue to use Jones like a wide receiver. Throwing the ball to running backs is good, but it's really only worth doing if you're going to throw to them like you throw to receivers down the field. Running back targets that are just dump-offs, even screens, are not very efficient, and they don't really gain yards any more effectively than just running the ball, which, as we know, is not as effective as passing it, or at least as efficient. So if you can use Aaron Jones primarily as a running back who runs wide receiver type routes and then occasionally carries the ball. I think that's an entirely different conversation than just saying, hey, he's a running back. We got to pay our our good running back. These are all variables that are going to be interesting to watch the Packers way. And I think it'll be good once the decision on Aaron Jones comes down that we'll be able to have Brian Gutekunst come out and say, here's why I did what I did. Here's what I think. I'll now take your questions. That's something we haven't always had in the past. So I've got for you in this show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening along throughout this entire season. We are hitting some really good numbers as far as downloads, and that is just really cool to see, and it's all thanks to you guys. If there's somebody that you think would enjoy this show, would enjoy the conversations we have here, heck, would want to be part of the community because we are kind of building a little community on YouTube, social media, uh, Patreon as well. Uh, We'll plug that again. Uh, If you want to check out our recent article on how the Packers are using their fullback so far this season, that's available at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Check that out. A dollar per month gets you access there. But really, uh, if you think someone would benefit from hearing this, go ahead and share it with them. That's going to help us build that community, help us continue this conversation around the Packers, and ultimately help all of us become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be.
I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.